Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring to give you praise and honor and glory, which is due to your name. Lord, uh, thank you for the blessing of being able to gather as the body of Christ. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and their desire to see what your word has to say for us. Lord, I pray that you would use the words of Daniel this morning to speak deep into our hearts, that we might better understand, that we might have a broader perspective, Lord, that we might understand your plan for your sovereign creation. And so we bow before you, we give you honor, we understand that Apart from the Holy Spirit, we could not understand what is written in these words that we'll read this morning, so we invite him to illumine our minds and show us the truth. And Lord, may through all of this you be praised and glorified. Amen. So this is week number 36 in our study in the book of Daniel, and last week we continue to walk through this prayer that we find in chapter 9. The first 19 verses of chapter 9 are a prayer of Daniel in response to what he has read in the, I guess, the, the scroll or the book or however it was put down that Jeremiah wrote. You remember Daniel came to that passage in the book written by Jeremiah that said that the desolation of Judah would extend for 70 years, and then the Jews would return. And so Daniel understands that 70 years is just about completed from the time at least when he was taken into captivity. And so he turns to the Lord in prayer, uh, sackcloth and ashes, humbling himself before the Lord. and. We look back last week at a passage in Leviticus 26, which I believe is what is in Daniel's mind as he comes uh, now to pray to the Lord. Because in Leviticus 26, we saw it, it gives very explicit blessings that would be Israel's if they obeyed God and curses that would be theirs if they did not obey God. And then at the end of the blessings and the cursings comes a passage that speaks to even after the curses, God still has not rejected his people. And so I think Daniel knows all of that. He was raised in the years when Josiah was the king. Um, the people at that time found the Pentateuch and all the ordinances, and Josiah reinstated them, and it was a, a reign of righteousness, uh, the greatest king to ever live uh, of the Israelites. And so Daniel was stooped in this when he was a boy, and so he remembers these things that were taught as he was growing up, and I think that's what's in his mind uh, now. He's remembering back to what was written in Leviticus 26. He clearly sees the curses have been unfoiled against the, the Jews, and uh, everything that God wrote that would happen in those curses has now happened to Judah and to Jerusalem and to the people. And so um, on that basis, I think, Daniel turns to the Lord to voice this prayer. Now, 
Leviticus 26 goes on uh, after what we read last week to speak about what happens to the land. And so I want to start there this morning, kind of um, backtrack a little bit back over in Leviticus. Um, I think your paper probably says Deuteronomy, but it should be Leviticus 26. And then we'll begin reading in 38. Some of this we read last week, but I kind of want to complete the thought. As I was um, going back and reviewing what we read, we didn't go all the way to the end of what God says here. So I want to begin in Leviticus chapter 26, down in verse 38, and just read this passage. And <clears throat> Some of this we read last week. But you will perish among the nations, and your enemies' land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquities in the land of your enemies. And also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart had heart becomes humbled so that they may make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will re remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. And that's kind of where we left it last week, that God says, even after all these curses, that if they'll humble themselves, they'll make amends for their iniquity, that he'll remember again the covenant that he made with Jacob, with Isaac, and with Abraham, going all the way back to when God first called Abraham out of the land of Ur. And so Daniel's remembering this. I mean, he's reflecting back. The, when God called Abraham has now been more than 15 hundred years to the time when Daniel was writing this book. So, I mean, it's been a long, long time. And so Daniel had to be raised in the writings of the Pentateuch or he would not have known any of this. He clearly would not have reflected all the way back to Moses and then all the way back to Abraham, which he does in his prayer. And he gets that, I believe, out of Leviticus 26. So that's where we left off last week, but keep reading in verse 43 because this meshes with those some year and a half that we spent from Genesis walking all the way through the book of Ezekiel talking about the land. Because look at what God says in verse 43. For the land will be abandoned to them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I abhor them to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God I am the Lord so this is God speaking to the people 
So, you know, people say, well, the coming out of Egypt and all of that was ancient by the time you get to Daniel, and it's true, it was. It was more than a thousand years, or it was 900 years since they had come out of the land of Egypt. But here, God says that's still important to him. And he reflects on the time when he brought them out of Egypt to be his people, and he made his covenant with them. And, you know, it looks, if ever there was a time in Jewish history where it looks like God has abandoned them, he has rejected them, there's nobody in Jerusalem, the land is totally desolate, there, all the Israelites there are are in Babylon in captivity, there's nobody there, this would be the time to give up on the Jews. This would be the time to say they're done, and if you're ever going to forsake them and do away with them, this is the time to do it, because there is no Israel. They're in captivity. There's nobody in the land. The land is absolutely desolate. There is no temple. There is no Jerusalem. It's all been destroyed. So this is the time to give up on the Jews if there ever was a time. And yet God says, I will not reject them. And I will not break my covenant with them. So, you know, why would God do that? For his own reasons, right? But even... And it looks like Israel has been destroyed. But I, I mentioned this, that you find it in the book of Jeremiah. And I want to look at two passages in the book of Jeremiah that God says, yes, it looks desolate, it is desolate, but the land is not totally destroyed. So go ahead. Let me ask a sure. It says, make up for the your staff. Yeah, it says to... Well, it's... Well, it says make amends for your sins, right? And notice what this book, what, what I just read in verse 43. Because, you know, you go, well, how do you make your amends to God for all your sins? Look at what it says. It says, they meanwhile, while they're in captivity, they meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected me. That's how you do it. That's what God says. How do you make amends for your iniquity? You go into captivity for 70 years. And then that is making amends. I mean, that's what the scripture says. That's not what I say. That's what God said. This is how you make amends, that you take the punishment that I've dealt out on you. Okay, but there's more. Look over in Jeremiah chapter 4. And we could go to several passages in Jeremiah to see this. Jeremiah just before Ezekiel, which is just before Daniel. So Jeremiah chapter 4. And the land is desolate, there's no doubt. The scripture says so. Verse 26 of chapter 4 of Jeremiah. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. So desolation does not equal destruction. Don't know what destruction looks like? Because this looks pretty bad. But God says, I will not allow or I will not execute a complete desolation. Then look over in chapter 5. I mean, again, we could go to several places. Verse 9 Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, 
and on a nation such as this shall I not avenge myself. Go up through their vine rows and destroy, but do not execute a complete destruction. So God is holding something back. We don't know exactly what it is. But when God says don't destroy completely, it doesn't get destroyed completely. So even in the midst of this desolation, even in the midst of captivity, God says, I will not forget my covenant. I will not completely destroy the land. So while it looks like it, and that's the way we describe it, and if, if there ever was a time for the Jewish nation to be snuffed out, this is it. But God says, no, not yet, because I will remember my covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. I will restore the land. And so this is what drives um, Daniel to go to the Lord in prayer. He knows what comes after the curses because he prays according to what comes after the curses. And so this is what's in his mind. This is what is the framework of why, why is it that Daniel goes and prays for the Lord. And we'll see this morning just how bold he is in calling God to hear his prayer and to answer his prayer. And so God does by sending the angel Gabriel to give him the answer. And that is the context in which the eschatology of chapter 9 is given in. And people miss that. They forget that God is responding to what he said in Leviticus 26 and what Daniel has prayed. So that's the right framework to have in your mind as we get into this further answer that Daniel gets. Now, I'm, I marvel, you may not, but I marvel at the extents that God goes to to preserve a remnant of people even while Israel is in captivity. And people say, well, God has replaced Israel now with the church. Well, I just happen, I can, I, if God can do what he did during this time to preserve a remnant of Jews that would be faithful to him, I believe he can still do it today. And he has been doing it even since 70 AD when the Jews were dispersed, even through the Holocaust when they were murdered by the millions that God has preserved for himself, a remnant of true Jews who still believe. And so, if he could do it then, he can do it now. Because I think he still has a plan for Israel. If he wouldn't forsake them at this time, I see no reason to believe that he would forsake them now, at this day and age. So if ever there was a time, this is when he would have just done away with them. But he didn't. Okay, so we go on into verse 14 of chapter 9 of Daniel now, and we'll continue through this prayer that Daniel prays. Verse 14 of Daniel chapter 9. Therefore the Lord kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. So what's Daniel saying? That even in the destruction 
of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in the captivity of the Israelites, God has remained righteous in all his deeds. So how could he say that? Because God did exactly what he told them that he would do if they did not obey him. And so Daniel says, God has kept the calamity on us for these 70 years because of our sinfulness, because of our iniquities. So Daniel says, it's not God who's unrighteous, it's us. And God is perfectly righteous in punishing the Israelite nation because he did exactly what he warned us that he would do. And so if God had not done this calamity, this desolation, this destruction of the nation, then he would not have been righteous because he would not have kept his word. So Daniel understands that and says that God had to do what he said he would do, otherwise he would be unrighteous. And because he has done what he said he would do, he is therefore still continuing to be righteous. He is, after all, the righteous judge over the whole creation. He can do with it whatever he well pleases. He could do that today. He could do whatever he well pleases. As a matter of fact, he does whatever he well pleases and whatever satisfies his purposes. That's still true today. Daniel recognized it, even though he had been in captivity almost his whole life, although he'd seen the nation desolated, yet he still says God is righteous. He has the right to do what he said he would do. It's amazing what Daniel, his perspective, and what he says here. Um, you know, people today push against the truth that God can do with his creation whatever he wants to do, right? People hate that. The world hates that thought that God could do whatever he well pleases. And they say God's not fair to punish us all. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absurd argument. And I like what Paul says in response to that argument. And so it's worth looking at over in Romans chapter 9 where he's talking about these Jewish people pleading that he could be accursed if they could be saved. That's what chapter 9 of Romans is all about. Paul explaining that God has been sovereign over everything that has happened ever since the creation and that he can do what he well pleases. And then he comes to this absurd argument in Romans 9 and verse 17. He's already gone through multiple examples of where God, such as with Jacob and Esau, did something, chose one of them before they were born, before they had committed any acts of good or bad, that he chose Jacob over Esau. And people are like, how can he do that? He's not fair. And then he says, and I created Pharaoh that I might destroy him. Well, that's not fair. How could God do that? Pharaoh didn't have a chance. And you come to verse 17. <clears throat> for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Really, is that fair? 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And then here's Paul's answer. And this should be your answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And then he goes on to say that God chose even those out of the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And so the answer to is God fair or not fair is that's an absurd question. That's a stupid question. God's always fair. He's the very definition of moral and ethics. And he has the right and the might to do whatever he well purposes with his creation. And we can't answer, question that. Does not the potter have a right to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for trash and the other for honor? Sure he does. He can do whatever he well pleases. He's the potter. And that's the answer. That's the only answer. It's the answer that Paul gives to that absurd question that people ask. God is not fair. It's not fair for him to choose some and not to choose all. This is the answer. That's a dumb question. You don't get to ask that question. And that's the only answer. And so what God has done to Israel is perfectly righteous. He has the right to do what he said he would do. He has the right to do whatever he well pleases with his creation, and he will. And whether men question if it's fair or not fair, they will bow and acknowledge that he's righteous and that his judgments are just. So those are the right answers to these questions. This is the mind of Daniel as he prays before God, that you can do whatever you will please, and you do, and you have, and you will continue to, and you wrote in Leviticus 26 that you would restore. So now I'm coming to you, is Daniel's prayer. Go on with me in verse 15. He says, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made it a name for yourself, as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. <laughs> so here's Daniel, right? Why does he remember back to when God brought them out of Egypt? I mean, that's been 900 years. Why does he go back to that? Because that's what Leviticus goes to. That's what Leviticus uses as the example that God has shown himself and his might and his power. So Daniel, in his mind, goes back to that same place. Lots happened in those 900 years. I mean, a lot. But Daniel remembers that that's where God demonstrated his power. That's where he created the nation of Israel. So that's what he goes back to. He remembers that 900 years ago and when God called them out of Egypt. Now... Even though God clearly has revealed himself multiple times to the nation of Israel, 
I mean, first in bringing them out of Egypt, then after the wandering, taking them into the land under Joshua. We studied all this. The capture of much of the land, but not all of the land. The death of Joshua, then the judges come because there's chaos in Israel for 400 years. And then all of a sudden they want a king, so he gives them Saul, who winds up to be bad. So he he replaces Saul with David, then Solomon, then the kingdom splits. And then not too long after, the northern kingdoms go into captivity. And then you come down to the southern kingdoms 150 years later, and they go into captivity to Babylon. Now they've been there 70 years. So a lot has happened since God brought them out of Egypt. But Daniel remembers that's where God showed his power and his might, and he can do that again. And so that's why he remembers these things. That's why he goes back to that. And God has already shown himself to the world. I mean, the, the world all along knew that God brought Israel out of Egypt and established a nation. That was well known. If nothing else, the Jews bragged about it to everybody. Wrongly, but nevertheless, they did. And so many of these countries that were around them, who Israel somehow was always able to defeat, recognized that God was for them. But now, it looks like he's not. And so that's the basis of which Daniel continues to pray in verse 17. This is boldness, okay? So now, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, is Daniel not bold? God, listen to me. Hear what I'm saying and act. How could he do that? I mean, this is the sovereign of the creation. This is the Lord God Almighty who is able to just snuff them out if he wants to. And yet Daniel goes, God, listen to me. Hear me. Act. Respond to me. How can he do that? Because Leviticus 26 says that's what God is going to do. So Daniel is praying according to the instruction of God and knows that if God would wipe us out, then he'll do what he said at the end of 26 and restore us. So he calls on God to act, not on the basis of what Daniel's asking, but on the basis of what God had told them to do. And Daniel's doing it. He's confessing his own sins, the sins of the nation, the sins of their forefathers. They've been making amends for 70 years in captivity. Exactly what God said to do. And so now he says, listen to me, hear me. You said you would do this, so please do it. And notice there are three things that Daniel's praying for. And these will become paramount when you look at the answer that Gabriel gives to Daniel. 
Notice the three things. In verse 16, he says, your city, Jerusalem, God's city, Jerusalem. And then he says it again, I think it's in 18. Yeah, your eyes see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. Jerusalem. So he's praying for the city. And then up in verse 17, he says, so now, so now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his supplications for your sake, O Lord. Let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. That's the temple. So he prays for the city and he prays for the temple. And he calls them your city your temple. And notice in he uses the the term your sake, your city, your temple, your eyes, your name. It's all about God. Everything he's prayer Everything in his prayer, why it would help the people, no question. Why it would help the city, no question. His focus is that all of this belongs to God. And God needs to do it not for the sake of the people, but for his own namesake. He needs to restore for his own namesake. Do you remember a passage when we were in Ezekiel where God at the end, during the beginning of the millennial kingdom, he says, I'm going to restore the people. I'm going to restore the city. The lands are going to be very fruitful and will be filled with people. And he's talking about the Israelites. Do you remember what God said, why he was going to do that? For his name's sake. Look over in Ezekiel. If I can find it here. It's somewhere in your notes. But 26, 36. Ezekiel 36. It has to be during the millennial, right? And then look at these verses that... I mean, we, I was astounded when we originally read this and, and talked about it. But it's appropriate that we see it now. This is, has this is always been God's purpose. This is why he originally called Egypt, called Israel out of Egypt, was to establish a name and a people for himself. And then you get to chapter 36 of Ezekiel, and he's talking about the time when the land would be restored and the land would be blessed. And um, then verse 22, after God has told him all that he's going to do, he says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness 
of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. This is God's motivation in the millennial kingdom to establish Israel again. He says it one more time down in verse 32. I mean, this is, I mean, the people are going to be blessed, right? And in the midst of that, verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. I'm not doing this so you'll be blessed. That is not my motivation. That is not why God is going to restore them from Babylon back to their land. He's doing it for his name's sake so that people will know who he is, so he'll demonstrate himself again. I mean, he did it when he called them out of Egypt and established the nation of Israel. And for all those years when the other nations knew. Now, after desolation, he's going to call them back. Zerubbabel Zerubbabel will build the temple. Nehemiah will build the gates. They'll again occupy the city of Jerusalem. They'll be there through all that we saw about Antiochus Epiphanes, then the Hasmonean dynasty, then the Romans will come in and will um, add to the splendor of the temple. And then ultimately in 70 AD, in the midst of all that glory, it'll be destroyed again. So here in the millennial kingdom, God has to vindicate his name again because for at least 2,000 years, right, 2020, his name has been marred and his people have profaned his name and continue to today to profane his name. And so here in the millennial kingdom, he once again will vindicate his name. He did it in the beginning with Israel. He did it when he restored them after this Babylonian captivity. He'll do it again in the millennial kingdom. And it's all about his name. Now, Daniel doesn't know about all that, right, later? But he knows about it now, that God is doing this. Look at what he says. I mean, Daniel has this so right. It... it, is astounding. This is what should inform our prayers. This is the way that we ought to pray. Look what he says in verse 18. For we are not presenting our supplications, so he's praying for the whole nation, before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. He's saying, God, we don't have anything to offer. All we have is shame and desolation. We have nothing to offer you. So we're not doing this on any merit that we have. Nothing. Now, what does that sound like? (coughs) That sounds like the way that people today have to come to Jesus Christ in order to be saved, right? God, I don't have anything to give to you. I have no merits. I have no righteousness. I have nothing but sinfulness. And so I beg you to have compassion on me, to forgive me. 
Right? That's the way people come to Jesus Christ. If they don't come that way, then they don't get saved. If they come saying, God, look at how good a person I am. Look at all that I've done for you. Certainly, you'll save me. And they'll say, I never knew you. Because you have to come to the Lord Jesus like a child, right? A child comes to you, and they have nothing to offer. Right? They don't have any skills. They don't have any uh, great abilities. They just hold their arms up, right? Please take me. That's how you have to come to Jesus. Any other way is not true. And so that's, it was true then. It's true now. It's always been the way that God accepts people, is they come not on their own merits, but on his choice, on his grace, on his righteousness. I mean, what does the scripture say even about the faith that you placed in Jesus Christ? It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, right? Ephesians 2. You didn't come on your own merits or because you had such great faith that you conjured up. No, God gave you that faith to believe in Jesus Christ. All we had was sinfulness. The same is true today. I mean, even as a saved person, you still don't come to God on any merits of your own. Anything that you've done, any good that you've produced, any good thing that you have is the gift of God. It's not because you're so good or you're so great or you're able to do so much. It's all by the grace of God. And so that's still the way that we come to God today. It should be the way that we pray to him. That I don't come on the basis of anything. That's why often when you hear me pray, I usually start my prayer with, Lord, we come to you on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because that's the only way that we have access to the Father is because of what the Son did. That's what Daniel's saying here. We, we have nothing to offer. We're just pitiful. But you have great compassion. You have great love for your people and for your name. So please restore us for your name's sake. And then almost as an afterthought, praise for the city, praise for the temple, and then the very last thing that he says before Gabriel interrupts him. In verse 19, he says, Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. So he finally gets to the people. Nowhere previously has he mentioned, God, please restore your people. Please restore your city. Please restore the sanctuary. And please restore the people. So that's his threefold prayer. Because if God does those three things, rebuilds Jerusalem, rebuilds the temple, and restores the people, then the restoration of the nation will be complete. That's enough. And God's name will be recognized once again, which is his purpose in doing all of this. Which is why he never, you know, he says back in Leviticus, I will not forsake them. Why not? Because that would be breaking my covenant, which I made with them. People miss that today, right? Oh, that covenant, that's been replaced. It's, 
Yeah, it has. <coughs> but what God said to, the, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still in play. Otherwise, otherwise, God would not be righteous. People disagree with that, right? No, Jesus Christ said, I bring a new covenant, and he did. He did. But it doesn't nullify the previous covenant. It nullifies how you come to God, for sure. But, you know, even the Jews were not saved because they kept the Mosaic law. They were saved because they looked forward to the coming Messiah. And they believed God. They had faith in God. That's how they were saved. We're saved looking back at Jesus Christ and placing faith in him. So nothing has changed in all these 4,000 years since God called Abraham to go to a, a new land. God has been consistent the whole way, and it's still consistent today with what he originally said, what he said in Leviticus to Moses, what Moses told the people, what Daniel remembers, what Daniel prays. This is what is the motivation of God, is to vindicate his name. And Daniel prays on that basis. So Daniel has done exactly what Leviticus 26 says needs to be done for God to act again. And so at that point, Gabriel interrupts Daniel's prayer. He's been praying all day. And Dan Gabriel has been on his way. We'll talk about that a little bit. It takes Dan uh, Gabriel all day to get there. I thought he's an angel, could do anything. Yeah, he's not omnipresent. He has to go places. And so da Gabriel comes and interrupts this prayer with this mindset that we have now and speaks the 70 weeks of Daniel in answer to this prayer. The 70 weeks of Daniel that everybody gets all wrapped around the axles about is an answer to this threefold prayer of Daniel. So we'll look at that beginning next week. And it'll take us, I promise, several weeks to get through the 70 weeks of Daniel. There's a lot to unpack there. Thanks for your time.